Well, it's the third week of Advent, and uh, exciting to be together, exciting times. I know uh, the preparation for Christmas is on for many of us. Uh, many of you guys are in finals this week. Some of you guys are in finals this week, which is fantastic. Fin- finals before Christmas. Love it. And what we've done is uh, last week, we've started a journey. If you weren't here last week, actually, it was really important. Uh, We're starting a journey through the church calendar over the next six months, taking each season in the liturgical church calendar and walking through the text that's presented in the Revised Common Lectionary. So basically, the next little while, I think there's actually a picture of it, of the church calendar, if you ever want to see kind of how the flow of the church calendar is with the Christian community. We're going to move from Advent to Christmas to Epiphany to Lent to Easter to Holy Week, sorry, to, to Holy Week, to Easter, to Easter Tide, and then to Pentecost Sunday. And we just really feel like this is a really important thing for us to do at least once in the life of our church. Um, there's a bigger calendar that leads the Christian community, and we want to like lean in and yield to that calendar and learn some things along the way from that. So really, there's actually texts that are given to us that are kind of handed down to us, and that's what we do. So if you have a Bible, I encourage you to open with me to James, actually, is the New Testament text, James chapter 5. I'll give you a second to turn there. James chapter 5. If you're new to the Bible, James is kind of near the end of it all, near the end of the New Testament. James chapter 5. Now, it's interesting, uh, you may or may not know this, but James, the writer of the text that we're going to read right here, was Jesus' brother. Now, think with me, brothers and sisters, because I'm just a thinker. Think with me, because there's a bunch of things over my life that have led me to the way of Jesus. I think of family and some mentors and people, and there's also some concrete things around theology that have led me in the way of Jesus and persuaded me to Jesus of Nazareth. But probably this right here takes the cake. Think about it for a second. Jesus' brother (laughs) came to the realization that he's the Messiah. I'm in. You're with me? That's a game changer. Like for for a dude's brother, at least I know my brother pretty well, um, it would take a lot for him to come to know and understand that I am the king of the universe. And yet James actually enters into this life that his physical real brother, he writes actually a letter, something that's now in the canon of scripture that we're going to read here. And for me, it's just like, this is legit because this wouldn't happen anywhere else. Some dude's brother actually writing about him being the Messiah. Now, with that said, let's read it. It says this, James, says, uh, James 5, verse 7, Be patient then, brothers and sisters, be patient, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. You too, be patient and stand firm, because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord, Jesus' brother. It's interesting right now because the reality is from microwaves to text messaging and the constant pressure to always be available to Amazon Prime, anybody with me, and express shipping, we have an entire world of goods and services in the palm of our hand to Uber Eats or Skip the Dishes. I've never used these services, but I hear they're amazing. One of the things that is lost in our moment is this idea of patience. 
patience. And yet, as Jesus followers, and James gets it into here, remember, Jesus' brother, as followers of Jesus, we're called into a life of being patient people. <laughs> yeah. So let's do this. It's Advent, third week of Advent. Let's talk about church history, sex, and suffering. Sound like a plan? This may be the best Advent sermon or teaching you've ever heard. Just buckle up. Church history. Many of you guys know if you've been around the teaching for a while that recently I have been, like the last few years, I have been fascinated with how the church went from being this little fringe group following a Messiah, a Jewish rabbi from Galilee, how they went from this little group to exploding throughout the empire within 300 years, within the first 300 years of the church's history. How did it go from this little, subversive, diverse group that nobody really knew about following a crucified Messiah, which was unthinkable in the Roman world, like total a sham to most people? How did it go from that to then in the early 300s under Constantine, a, a Roman emperor in the Roman Empire, to being the major religion in the empire. How did this happen? I've, I've read tons about this and I've shared much of this over the last number of years and what I think many scholars and people have been saying about this. There's a guy named Alan Kreider who makes a number of really fascinating points about this early church. And I actually think it spurs us on to this idea of Advent today. He says this, that the church, in the second and third centuries, so in the 100s and 200s, they wrote three, as the church was evolving, they wrote three different treaties on peace, but they never had a single treaty on this thing called evangelism. He goes on, he talks about how the second and third century churches did not talk actually a lot about the Great Commission in these churches. There's not a lot of history about the, 100, the church early on talking about the Great Commission because they had thought that this was what the early apostles had already done. Make sense? They thought that the early apostles had already gone out, remember the Great Commission, to go into all the world. They didn't talk a lot in the early churches about this because they thought the apostles that we read about in the Bible had already gone and, and done this. He goes on and he talks about how there was this unique way in which these early churches played. He says that churches did not use their worship services to attract new people. In quotes, in the aftermath of the persecution of Nero, if you remember, there's this tyrant Caesar named Nero who ravaged Christians in the 60s, and we're not talking like you know, the hippie 60s, we're talking like the 60s early on, that churches around the empire at varying speeds and varying places, cl actually closed their doors to outsiders. This is how they rolled. There was so much oppression from the empire around them that this idea of the Great Commission and even opening doors publicly, like we sit in a public building that we don't even own and we invite everybody in, this is actually not how they rolled. Kreider says this, they lived by this Latin term, disciplina, Arcani, which is the discipline of the secret, would, secret, which actually banned outsiders from entering private Christian worship. His thing is, is that when the Christians got together, and it was majority in homes, it was actually private. Now, please hear what I'm not saying. I think we should evangelize. I think the Great Commission is legit. Hang, you don't, don't lose your mind here. I think these things are very, very important. But I also think... I think we got to look at how the early churches rolled in the empire. 
Crater goes on that he says that the baptized Christians knew how powerful their worship services were in their own lives together. That early fourth century North African believers said simply this: "We cannot go without the Lord's Supper." This is how they we cannot we cannot go a week without gathering around the table in Jesus' name for the bread and wine. Crater says, they knew that their worship services were to glorify God and edify the faithful, not to evangelize outsiders, and yet improbably, he says, the movement was growing. And this is what he shows. They weren't trying to like open the doors to the entire world, and yet in number, in size, in geography, the thing began to explode. Odd, isn't it? Interesting, isn't it? They weren't obsessed with seeing everyone saved. They simply lived out the way of Jesus and people all around them began to take notice. And here's the thing, and we don't like this. I don't like this at least. I stood in line for like 30 minutes at Superstore this week. It took time for these communities to root themselves and to draw others in by their way of life. The early churches in the empire were patient like fine wine, and some of you think I'm joking here, but I'm not. It took time for the church's practices to turn the church towards the way of Jesus and ultimately turn the culture into the way of Jesus. And today, it kind of, this is just my critique, I could totally be wrong, don't email me on this, but today it feels like the last thing you would call the church in our moment is patient. I notice, uh, as I talk to a lot of Christians, I'm outside of our community in our city about the church, that patience is not in our vocabulary. There's often pressure to perform. There's pressure because of the Great Commission to reach people. I hear it all the time. Is your church growing? You know? There are conferences about how to quickly get people into your church or get your church to the next, next level or how you're going to change the world. There's church planting networks literally based around attracting large crowds and raising copious amounts of dollars. You see, this is the pinnacle of success in our Western moment. It's gotta be fast, it's gotta be loud. Cue the people planted in the front row that say amen. amen. Well, we don't have those, so it's all good. It's a thing though, you're like, what? It's actually a thing. <laughs> it's gotta be fast, it's gotta be entertaining. And yet it seems like when you look at the history of the church, it's always worked best when the church is patient. This is what we see in the early church from all of my combing through books. I'm really helping you because you, you do not have to do this. But trying to get a handle on how these communities rolled, they were patient. They were people that were committed to the way of Jesus, to each other, and they were there for the long haul because patience is the way of Jesus. Which leads me to sex. That kind of sounded weird, didn't it? I mean, what I mean is this leads me to talk about sex, which is probably just as weird or doesn't sound much better to you. You're probably thinking, wait, church history, Christmas, and sex. Yeah, yeah, welcome. Thanks for coming. You know, it sounds funny, but I've been thinking about sex and Advent a lot recently. Sounds weird. I don't mean it the way you think it, but let me explain myself. I've been thinking about, I've been thinking about how the Jesus view of sex, you know, this radical subversive view where sex is reserved for marriage has, has a lot to do with waiting and longing and patience. 
Now, don't get me wrong. I know we live in a sexually liberated culture, and you basically can do whatever the hell you want. And understand the nuance of my words there. I'm not using that as a swear word. You can do whatever the hell you want with your body, with whoever you want. But the Jesus way, this way of being patient, not simply giving in to every desire that you have, is actually a signpost of the kingdom. And it's actually that is something that I think is actually something that's quite fitting for Advent, this patience. You know, one thing we don't talk a lot about is that Christians have always been called into a life of delayed gratification. Can we just say this together, this word, delayed, these two words, delayed gratification? Ready? One, two, three. I know, I know. And this is so important to understand, but I also think it deeply ties to Advent. More than the Christian community and those who follow Jesus just being Victorian or old school when it comes to our view of sex and sexuality, is actually the reality that sex leads us to a bigger story. The delay and the waiting for Jesus' followers in their sexual lives isn't because we're holier than thou or that we're really good moral people because we really, we know we're not, right? It's more than that. The delay in our sexuality points to a bigger story that we too, as we wait to give our bodies to someone in covenant marriage, are waiting patiently for the renewal of all things. Just as a marriage comes together and is consummated after a season of waiting, we wait and we long for heaven to come back to earth in this marriage. So a practice life in the way of Jesus takes patience. And in a world where there's, and you know this, this is no surprise to you, where there's easy access to sex everywhere, from access to porn to Tinder, which, which way do you swipe again to get a date on Tinder? I was trying to get you all caught there. I, was, I had a funny thing in my notes. I was trying to get somebody caught. They're going to be like, right. And I was going to be like, oh, see? See? Ah, see? No judgment. All right. That didn't work out the way. In my head, I thought that was going to work out way better than it did. Right? Sex for those who wait, listen, in our culture, sex for those who wait, I know it's laughable in culture, but shouldn't be laughable, or prudent, or it shouldn't be an idea stuck in the dark ages. It's actually a sign that there's something better coming and that my life is not the sum of how I feel. And this is Advent. This is Christian human sexuality, but this is also, this is Advent. So we know that like a little baby not in golden fleece diapers, was coming. We know this. We practice this story. Talladega Nights, nobody? Come on. Great scene. Thank you. There's a few of you. Best movie ever. There's, I don't know, it would have to, it would have to go against Mr. Deeds, which is like my all-time favorite movie. Everybody looks at me like I'm a loser, but it's all good. Patience. Patience is part of this. Which leads me then to Suffering. Suffering. Notice if, you go, if we go back to the text, and we're going to just take a second here before we come to the tables. Notice the vibe and context that surrounds James' writing here. So one, James calls for the church to be patient. Why? Anybody see it in their text? Why? Why does he call them to be patient? Because Jesus is returning. We hold on to this. Be patient. Live patiently as this community because Jesus is returning. Then he gives an illustration of a farmer planting seed, which I know we're right in the heart of the city and most of us are urbanites and we don't live in rural settings. We still understand, I think most of us, that crops take time to harvest. 
right? A farmer is patient. They plant the seed, and then later on in the year, it takes months of time to engage the ground and to flourish into a crop. And so the picture that James gets is just like a farmer who puts the seed into the ground. We, too, that are living in this moment of chaos, there's all sorts of craziness all around us in our world, we are patiently waiting for the king to return. And then he does it again. He calls Jesus' followers to be patient. And he uses this word, stand firm. That's in English. That's translated for us. Now, if you, if you do a little study and you realize any time this word, like from Genesis all the way to Revelation, when God calls people to stand firm, it always has to do with suffering and persecution. And sometimes we take the suffering out of Christmas. For some of you, this season is a really painful season. As we talked in From Redemption to Recycling, some of you, this has been like the worst year for you. There's been a lot of stuff even in our own community, and I would imagine for many of us, this is, this is the way life kind of works. There are suffering, there's suffering, there are trials, there are all sorts of things. But we have to remember here that James is actually writing to people who were living under persecution, deep persecution as they follow Jesus. And can I just remind you, that the repercussions of this kind of persecution in the first century was not having a few friends stop talking to you because you're a Christian, right? Or people thinking you're weird. Like, this is the sum of our persecution in, in the day that we live. A few people may not like me because I'm a Jesus follower. You're not the cooler, you know, at work, around. You know, people are they may not like me if they know I'm a Jesus follower. Um, this isn't the persecution that the first century was experiencing at all. We have it extremely easy in our tolerant moment. The persecution that James and the church was facing under the, under, under the boot of Rome, remember, under the Roman Empire, was in many ways, it was institutional. It wasn't just like friends not liking you, but it was like institutional from the top. There was geopolitical significance in this kind of persecution, especially under some of these crazy empire, uh, emperors who wanted people to worship them, not other gods. And so especially under a tyrant like Nero, there was a threat of losing your livelihood, Remember 666 uh, in Revelation, people freak out about that. It was actually a mark that you would take in the Agora to buy and trade under some of the emperors. Like if you didn't bow your knee to that emperor and his way of life, you basically couldn't get groceries in the, in the Agora. So it led to a threat of losing your livelihood. And at worst, you know this, if you study church history, you could lose your life on a Roman cross for following the way of Jesus. You're like, what? wait, isn't that for Jesus? Oh, no, brothers and sisters, Many that have gone before us died on Roman crosses. It wasn't ex mutually exclusive to Jesus. After he ascended to heaven, many of those of, that went before us experienced the exact, exactly the same thing. So this isn't hurt feelings like this kind of suffering or persecution. This is your life. So one of the things that James says to the church is this. He says, actually, don't grumble with each other. And I think it's really important to understand this. And we're... A, part of a healthy church here. It's actually really beautiful. But I think what James is really saying is that the reality of their situation in the first century is that a persecuted church doesn't have time to quarrel with each other. Like when you're living under the boat, boot of Rome, like think about how serious things would get for us as a community if we knew we were gonna, there's potential of losing our lives by just showing up here. I mean, I think it makes sense for James to say, listen, don't quarrel. There's, there's a little bit of bigger things happening. They're not to actually worry about quarreling. They're to worry about their oppressors, the ones coming on them, and James knows this. 
And, you know, I got thinking this week, maybe that's why a lot of North American churches, and we are a very healthy church, guys, but a lot of North American churches have so much quarreling and division. It's because we're not persecuted. So we, a lot of people have to, have to find something to do with their time, right? And a lot of times that ends up in quarreling. And so James says with emphasis that Jesus will judge. Don't quarrel with each other. Jesus will judge. So don't bring division. And then, to close, he gives a picture in our minds and hearts, as we pick this up years and years later, of what kind of patience we need. Remember what he said? You know the example he used? Verse 10, brothers and sisters, he says, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. And this is where we pick it up and go, no, right? Uh, give me, anybody, give me a, an example of a characteristic of an Old Testament prophet. Think about it for a second. These dudes were weird, right, at times. And they were called into all sorts of gnarly persecution and suffering. James, and this isn't that fun. Merry Christmas, thanks for coming. But James tells us to look at Israel's prophets, to look at them dead in the eye as an example of patience. They were despised. They were ridiculed by both people inside of Israel, by their own people and by people on the outside. Yet they were faithful to proclaim God's word. They were patient. And this is what James is doing. If anything could be your example, it's the prophets of old. And listen, I don't want to simply you know, distill everything down to the reality that even though we suffer in this current moment and everything that we go through, that there's a better day coming. But it's true. So like, we're obviously very empathetic. For many of us, this has been a really hard year. We look at our lives um, there's so many things that we've walked with brothers and sisters. I don't want to just simply say, well, there's a better day coming. But then there's part of me that's like, that's true. The prophets of old knew it. The persecuted church in the first few centuries knew it. And this same ring, if anything, is the Advent message. It's that the king is coming. That yes, joy, hope, peace, love, all of these things embodied, but it's true. This is the thing, honestly, that should blow people's minds about Jesus' followers. And it should be felt and experienced, especially during Advent, that everything we experience in this current moment is not all that there is. That's your turn to say amen. I know that we don't have people planted in the front row, but can you say amen that to that? That is the Christian hope, that no matter what we experience in this moment, the highs, the lows, and everything in between, that there is a better day coming and Jesus is going to return and make all things new. We long for the day when Jesus returns. He saves us, so we're saved, but we're not fully saved. And he releases those who are bound in sin and death and sets them free. This story is beyond hopeful. This is why, honestly, I know we all have moments we can give our lives and times to th time to things. This is why I, I sit up here and we, why we sit up here is because this story encapsulates all of life, the hope that is in it. So in a culture, honestly, where people change jobs and relationships, and I do think there's good reasons at times to change churches, but let's be honest, we live in London, Ontario, where people change churches a ton of, in hopes of something better or more fulfilling. We need to learn to be patient. And this is what Advent is all about. I think Henry Nouwen, great Catholic, put it like this. He said, I am the prodigal son every time I search for unconditional love where it cannot be found. Isn't that beautiful? I, Drew Fowler, 
you put yourself aside. I mean, you think through this, but I am the prodigal son. Every time I search for unconditional love where it cannot be found, it takes patience, it takes time. Like a, a farmer planting the seed, it takes time. Now, Kreider in his book, and we'll close with this, he just makes a number of statements about patience that I think is so fitting for the third uh, Sunday in Advent. He says this, patience is rooted in God's character. God is patient, working exonerably across the centuries to accomplish his mission, and in the fullness of time has disclosed himself in Jesus Christ. So just remember that God, Yahweh himself, is patient. How do we know this? I mean, he could have done the renewal of all things in a snap. You ever think about that? Like, why this whole journey? Why this toil? Why do we live in an age of sin and suffering and death? When Jesus could have, could have sent Jesus, boom, it could have been done in a second. Because God's patient. And I think that's actually part of his loving character, that it takes time to compel people and draw people into his kingdom. Because he's not like Nero, and he's not like the other Caesars that are going to stiff arm people or other political figures right now in our moment. Just saying that tend to use authoritarian rule to kind of draw people into the, that's not the way Jesus works. It's patient. And God through Jesus is patient. Kreider would say that the heart of patience is revealed in the incarnation of Jesus. So Jesus' life and teaching demonstrate what patience means and beckons those who follow him to a patient lifestyle which participates in God's mission. Patience is not in a hurry, he says. Patient Christians live at the pace given by God, accepting incompleteness and waiting. Patience is not violent. It accepts injury without retaliating in kind because violence is not God's calling to them and cannot bring fundamental change. Listen to this. He says patience actually gives religious freedom, which I think is beautiful. It does not compel religious beliefs and observances. And you think the world we live in, I think as Jesus invites people into his way, there's all sorts of things out there. But Jesus is patient in inviting us. And he says, patience is hopeful. It entrusts the future confidently to God. This is what patience does. As we live in between the times, as we live in between the ascension of Jesus and his second coming, we're called into a life of patience. And if any time right now at Advent, this is the time in our lives to really reflect on this. Are we in a hurry? I just know um, my upbringing was very triumphal. I grew up in the Pentecostal church, which is amazing. And there was uh, moments where it was like, we're going to change the world. You know, we're going to change the world, which, I, you know, I, I appreciate it. It was beautiful. But oftentimes what was neglected is this patient way of life. And again, my friends, James calls us and says, listen, be patient as we wait.